0: Welcome to the Arts and Humanities podcast for the 18th of November 2008. Today we're at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies for a research seminar entitled The Business of the Literary Agent. This was given by Anthony Harwood and the talk is introduced by Dr. Claire Squires. I'm
1: delighted to welcome to the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies Anthony Harwood here on my left. Anthony is a literary agent. He's now based in Oxford itself, um, which is very nice to welcome a London, an ex-London publisher into our midst. Um, He was just (laughs) go on. (laughs)
0: Ex-London agent.
1: Ex-London agent and publisher. Sorry. (laughs) Anthony moved his agency from London to Oxford, which is quite interesting. We were talking about that. a moment ago. His agency um, has been running since 2000. Before that, he worked as a literary agent for a number of other literary agencies. His clients include uh, people um, such as Alan Hollinghurst and A.L. Kennedy. He has quite a reputation for literary authors, but he also represents um, mass market writers and um, teen writers as well. Um, He's also worked before um, he was a literary agent as a publisher. In publicity and in production for a number of different companies and editorial as well. There (laughs) you go. I should have just asked Anthony to introduce himself, he would have done it better. (laughs) Anyway, I'm delighted to uh, invite uh, Anthony to speak to us about the business of a literary agent. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So, what do you do these days if you become a successful publisher? You quit and you become an agent. And of course that's not entirely true, but it is largely true. And over the last few years one has seen a procession of publishers leaving publishing and becoming agents. And why is that? Well, I think it's because the very thing that attracted many people into publishing and the very thing that is at the heart of the industry is no longer there. And that's the close creative, working relationship with the writer. We work in a, obviously, a talent-based industry, by which I mean that it relies and depends on exploiting something of value that's produced by a talented individual, and can only be produced by a talented individual. And talented individuals, writers, are scarce, and therefore (coughs) they have scarcity value. That's the center of the industry, that's what it's about. And it seems to me that all talent-based industries, film, (coughs) music, sports, and publishing, all follow a very, very similar evolutionary process. The sort of pattern has been the same. And agents within each of those industries, or managers as they're sometimes called, their role has evolved absolutely directly in tandem with the industry's evolution little digression here such a mad industry and such a hard industry to make any sense of because it just takes one book in publishing one film obviously in the film industry to make everything right you put out all those books and most of them don't happen and one of them makes it all happen and it's completely unpredictable and unfathomable uh, The Da Vinci Code is such a good example there's an author publishes three or four books over three or four years much happens. Most publishers now would just drop him straight away. He delivers the Da Vinci Code. They think we'll give it another go. Huge. Massive. Millions and millions and millions of pounds come into the company. Costs are covered. Hugely into profit. The book, having peaked, settles down to a terrific monthly level of sales. Terrific income. You would expect that in a year or two he'll deliver another book and it just keeps rolling hasn't delivered another book. And another interesting thing in the Dan Brown equation, Hollywood pick up the rights to make a big movie, and any of us would think, great, that'll give it another surge, that'll boost sales of the book. Killed it dead. Killed the monthly sale by 90%, and it stayed like that. Extraordinary. (laughs) So how do you make sense of this stuff? I really don't know. Anyway, back to the evolutionary process. So with publishing, and in film, you know, film you see studios they grow bigger and bigger they become corporations they become conglomerates they become part of huge media empires and somewhere along the way the talent primarily actors in the film industry assert their value they suddenly see that all this this industry is based on their work and they want a bigger slice of the pie and they want control and they when they assert it they assert it through agents and publishing is the same pattern. So back in the up to early 80s, the word industry isn't perhaps the best word for publishing. It was a large group of smallish businesses. And those smallish businesses were typically run by an individual who is usually typically an editor or an editorial figure whose great skill and talent and sometimes genius was working with a writer. I'm thinking of people like Tom Mashler at Jonathan Cape, Carmen Khalil at Virago, David Godwin at Cape. You know really hugely talented publishers. Godwin became an agent. Peter Strauss at Picador, mm-hmm. great publisher, became an agent. Um, he said, overemphasizing the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so these small companies were run by those kinds of people. And many of them were maverick and quite difficult, but colorful. but full of energy and passion and just excellent. But their companies grow and they begin to coalesce into bigger companies because bigger companies have more clout in the market. And as they grow, they become corporations. And as they become corporate and conglomerate, people of that nature, those maverick figures, just don't fit in anymore. <coughs> Mavericks don't work and play well with others. They don't like sharing decision-making processes. They don't like sitting in meetings because they know best. And sometimes they do, but it doesn't work in a big company. So they go. And that leaves a gap because who then is Mm. supporting and working closely with the author? The new breed of publisher requires new skills, management skills, budgetary skills, sales and marketing skills. Not about sitting with a writer and dealing with that. And so you get to the mid to late 80s those maverick figures are dying out or becoming agents or doing whatever they do and authors look around <coughs> and they see this huge you've been to a, you know, some of you many of you maybe have been to frankfurt this huge industry which all comes back to someone sitting alone usually in a room bashing away at a computer though the talent on which it's all based recognizes its clout its power and asserts itself. And although it's not, it's not down to one person, of course. If you look at what happened with Salman Rushdie and Martin amos and a whole bunch of other people in the mid-80s, through their agent Andrew Wiley, which, and I'm talking about now what how the media perceived it. But in truth, it, it was happening. Suddenly, serious rises, not just commercial rises. No one bats an eyelid if Jeffrey Archer gets a million pounds for a book. Suddenly, serious writers were getting serious money mm-hmm. because their agent recognized the pa- they recognized the power, and their agent affected it and they demanded control and a piece of the action that they didn't get and Amos particularly really rocked the old school because when he s- left c- sacked his existing agent and left his existing publisher, that was. Going to the heart of the old school of publishing. Those people had holidays together, they Christmas together, they were good mates, and it was <laughs> quite cozy. And that kind of coziness was fine and quite friendly and convivial, it wasn't necessarily always in the author's best interests. Certainly the authors felt that, and they moved on. It's interesting, you know, at the moment you, you read in the press or you hear on the radio that football agents are ruining the game by driving up the price of top players exactly what they said about literary agents in the 80s exactly the same thing so we come to the agent and you know what do we do and who are we well i think we provide various things for our clients for writers obviously in this day and age and With big companies if you're an editor or whatever in a publishing aspect let's talk about editors your career path takes you from one company to another you're here for a couple of years you're there for a couple of years agents don't do that we don't need to move around so we're a point of consistency and stability in an author's working life and that's important obviously i would like to think we have an expert understanding of the industry and we can therefore provide expert advice we see a lot through it if you as most agents represent a variety of writers not just serious novelists or commercial novelists or historians or whatever it might be you see a variety of publishers a range of careers you you see careers that get off to a massive start and then peter out careers that get off to a very very slow stumbling start and then take off and careers that just chug along so you get perspective uh, you see the full range of the industry and that helps you translate the industry sometimes to your clients your to the writers remember they're sitting at home alone writers and they feel excluded and to some extent are excluded you know you go to Frankfurt you won't see a writer there the last person you want to see at Frankfurt is a writer publishers run a mile from writers at Frankfurt I've run a mile from writers at Frankfurt <laughs> it's not about them Frankfurt's about rights but they sometimes need to understand that writers you know, they need someone to explain that and no one's going to do that except their agent, and that's quite important. It may sound facetious, but it's quite important. And crucially, given how things have changed, we are now hugely editorial agents. I certainly wouldn't send anything out to a publisher unless I feel that the author and I have r- knocked out every wrinkle, that, it's that the material is in its best possible shape. When I started in the business, you know, th- an author w- could quite happily deliver a first draft of a novel or a biography or whatever. Wouldn't dream of doing that anymore. You know, you want to knock a publisher dead as an agent. You don't want them ringing up and saying, "I f- like it," but because you you know you're 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 losing already. So I sit up o- late at night with a pencil, li- not just sort of making general remarks, but line editing because it has to be done. And publishers don't edit anymore. I'm making sweeping generalisations. Of course, publishers edit, but they don't. They really don't have the time to do that, and that. That's been for true for quite a long time now. Editing has diminished in publishing but has fallen back onto writers. So the onus is back on the writer, really to, to deliver first-rate material. Obviously, agents do quite a lot of firefighting, you know, when there are problems and complaints and issues. So we're arbitrators sometimes. Although it said on the screen something about literary agents being intermediary figures, I really do object to the... When people say, "So you're a middleman," yeah, absolutely, agents are not middlemen. We're paid by writers. We're like lawyers. We're representatives, so we're sort of intermediary, because we are between. We're that point, the interface between the artist and the industry. But I don't feel I'm an intermediary. I feel I'm representing the author, that's who's paying me. And th- and I really, you know, that it's the author's I- it's only the author's interest that I have at heart. The publisher looks after their end of things. I look after our end of things and we, meet we naturally reach a, a compromise. I'm not there to broker something fair. And because w- agents like writers are not entrenched necessarily in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of publishing, we see the other media. So we are there to exploit copyright, which is a thing of the value, across all the media. Publishers are not best placed to sell film rights in a book. They don't deal with film like agents do, like writers. A few words about the business today. Pretty tough, hugely polarized market. Big books sucking up all the business. Smaller books fighting over scraps, really. Um, This week's, last week's hardback bestseller list. Top 20, 17 titles with celebrity slash tie-in titles. Not very exciting a fiction list i think it was 16 books by major brand novelists only two of whom have emerged in the last 5 years so big well established well you know hugely familiar names not very exciting publishers are really actually you know it's traditional that agents take pops at publishers publishers take a pop at agents for the first time in my many, many years in the business. I feel a bit... uh, Publishers are really being caned at the moment. It's really tough. Um, The market, the way it is, is makes it very hard for them to make any progress. Most... The vast majority of books are sold from the front tables in bookshops or the special promotion shelves in supermarkets increasingly. That costs a publisher a fortune to get a book onto a shelf or a table. So, and, And not just a fortune as a straight one-off payment but extra discounts on the book and the discounts are pretty savage to start with and then frequently on a big book there'll be a kickback at the end so that if a book sells over 15,000 copies at Waterstones the publisher pays an additional royalty to the bookshop at the end of the promotional period so publishers profits are just nosediving. so it's very 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 tough here's an interesting graph which I've been shown by several of the major publishing groups in the last few months it does look like that. How it used to be for a book, this is weeks or months, weekly sales, monthly sales, that's number of copies sold. It used to be that you get the surge at the beginning, levels off, descends gently to a nice sort of backlist level. Now, massive surge in the first couple of weeks, massive decline to a low level. So you've lost, the publisher has lost all those sales. So even the big sellers, diminished number of copies sold, diminished income because the discounting is so savage now that there's just very little money about. So it's an interesting time because this it won't last. Things will change, but it's not an easy time for authors or publishers. And as for what lies ahead, well, obviously no one. You know, you never know. I mean, I think fasten your safety belts, and we're heading into some turbulence. Um, when in the publishing (coughs) industry at the moment, when they talk about the future, they're talking about largely digital publishing. And I really don't know. I don't know if we're heading towards an iPod moment when someone will bring out that sexy device that we all want to have and all want to read on. I got the Sony Reader the other day, and that's not the iPod. Um, At the same time, the alternative view is that we're competing, books are competing with... CDs, DVDs, video games, film, da 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 da. And we can't. We can't deliver that mass market appeal. Books need time and concentration, and they're not a quick evening out or whatever. <coughs> I d- and their view is that publishing will contract and actually end up resembling what it used to be, perhaps. And I'm not sure I quite buy that either. So, unknown as always, the future. Um, but there's always hope. And actually, you know what? Sonny Messer, who runs Knopf in the States, who's perhaps the greatest publisher of our times, he said it always comes back to the book. And people are still writing great books, and I think you know that's where the hope lies, that the work is still good, there's still books being published that we want to read, and that somehow will give us our future. Should we do questions and talk about other things? Anyone got anything specific you want to talk about or go back to? What do literary agencies do for authors who are just starting out? How well, that's... Yeah, actually, an you know, established author is pretty easy to, to yeah. run. Launching an author is... A, actually, the industry loves a new author. better to be a new author than uh, an author who's published three or four books, unless that those three or four books have won major prizes or sold huge numbers of copies. Well, uh, it, it's, uh, you're right. It's, uh, I mean, it's that's a, a crucial thing, launching, placing that first book. Well, apart from the editorial process on that book, it's selecting the right publisher for it. And the right publisher isn't just the publisher who pays the most, although that's very important, too, because the price the publisher offers will tell you how they value you. It's the only way you can measure it. They all say they love it. How much do you love me? Show me the money, as they say in the movies. Um, I'm being facetious. If you're an agent, you know, al- you know the publishers, you know the e- individual, you know the editors, and although they may leave next week, and I've sold books and the all editors left the next day, but that's a risky take. <laughs> it's matching the writer and the book with the right person in the publishing house. Because f- you know what the editor is now is not so much an editor as a champion in-house for the author. They've got to take the author, not literally, but take the author to the meeting, convince colleagues mm. that the author's worth, fighting for and publishing and paying well and so my job is largely sort of picking the right person for that, for that particular writer. Are they going to get on? Are they going to understand each other?
1: Uh, how much of your work is involved with negotiating rights? A lot.
0: Territorial rights, yeah. Around the world? Yes. Yeah. yeah, Obviously, a lot of my work is negotiating. And, of course, with the rise of the author and the agent, ideally what you want as an agent and an author is to sell the minimum package of rights for the most amount of money. So if you sell to a British publisher a book, I don't want to sell them... European rights, Canadian rights, American rights, translation rights, film rights. I want to sell them as little as possible. So uh, if I can keep back Canada, I'll keep back Canada. If I can keep back America and all the rest of it, I'll do that. So you want to parcel it up into as many little parcels and attach as big a price as possible to each of those little parcels. Um, Yet, yeah uh, around the world, certainly t- Taiwan's become an interesting territory. And I tell you, they package their books so well, really beautiful, I mean we could learn a lot from, I've seen a couple of uh, jackets come in, paperback covers rather, come in for authors I represent, largely commercial stuff, but so, so good, really classy and beautifully done, that's quite interesting. Those markets all go through their own fluctuations, many of them very similar to what we're going through. I, I used to think that what we're experiencing now derived largely from the fact that we abandoned the netbook agreement where book <coughs> prices were protected, you couldn't <coughs> buy a discounted book. Um, and publishers destroyed that, thinking that a discounted book, you know, you bring new readers into the business. And actually, it's shown that that doesn't happen. People who buy books buy books, and people who don't buy books don't, uh, regardless of price. Um, but in France, they didn't abandon the netbook agreement. Uh, prices are still fixed in France and they're going through exactly the same as we are, curiously. So it's obviously there's a cultural shift that takes place around the world and those things vary year in year out. Um, Emerging markets in terms of the type of rights, digital rights and audio and all those sort of things that have been newer, nothing particularly interesting. I mean e-book rights, huge amounts of time and money spent Anticipating a market which I've yet to see emerge, but it may. Maybe it'll be massive. But, you know, yeah, f- not so long ago there was th- a huge explosion <coughs> and investment on a major scale by publishers into when DVD ROMs, <gasps> oh, how exciting, came along. And everyone spent millions developing. Uh, Dorling Kinsley, I think, went down because of this. Investing millions of pounds putting books, no one's going to read books anymore. Really, they're not. They're going to all slot in DVD, you know, uh, CD-ROMs into their computers, and that's how we're going to do reference books in future. Didn't happen. So I, you know, I think we need to be really, really wary of some of that stuff. But no, nothing, nothing's changed hugely in that way. But you know, there's this, the the twin sons of the publishing industry are still New York and London, and yet we seem to be taking a little bit more into from into translation. We, uh, you know, this country used to be terrible. We kn- we'd read nothing in translation. Um, I think largely down to Scandinavian crime writers, we now are not too put off if it says translated by some, and they never put it on the front. <laughs> now you know, they tuck it r- well into the book, just in case you're, you know, worried. But we're just beginning to read work from elsewhere a little bit. Just shoot.
1: Hillary. <laughs> um, I have a question about literary prizes. When <laughs> about sorry, the literary prizes. prizes. Oh yeah. When Hollinghurst won in two thousand and four, did you notice a big difference in, in interest in? It's the all about books? prizes and Richard and so Judy. that's yeah. I mean that's so important now. It's almost more important than the publisher. Is the Richard prizes.
0: and Judy. Uh, I had a book on Richard and, on the Richard and Judy <laughs> a couple of years ago. That was just, <coughs> <laughs> extraordinary. I mean, it had done pretty well before that. It mm-hmm. sold. 90,000 copies before they came along. So we're quite pleased. Richard and Judy effect was just amazing. It went up to over half a million. Lovely for the author. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy to, I mean, I do too. I mock Richard and Judy. vulgar. You know, they picked some pretty good books. Because one of them was mine. (laughs) (laughs) They did. I think they did actually pick some good books. They did a terrific job. It was daytime TV. So, of course, it was daytime TV. That's how they produced the show. But... (coughs) Um, I only watched the one which was mine of course (laughs) Uh, but I thought they did a pretty good job now it'll be interesting now they've gone on to, uh, was it Channel 4 or whatever or one of the cable channels will it still have that power but literally, you know, if you're a serious writer if you're a a literary novice and if you're not Ian McEwan you're just going to have to win a prize Uh, A.L. Kennedy, hugely respected I mean, you couldn't write better reviews yourself this year she won in January the Costa, what used to be the Whitbread Prize, and that's made a real difference. But up until then, you know, (coughs) very modest sales without being indiscreet. But I mean, the last thing a publisher wants, publishers want now, is a serious novel, a literary. What we, you know, I'm using code words: literary novel, serious novel, whatever you want to call it. It's just it's on its knees. Serious publishing, really, really grim. Not really. Uh, mostly, b- I think, because I think I'm right in saying that there isn't really a tradition of agents outside this country and, and outside the States, outside the English speaking world. And so the publishers retain rights. They tend to sell their rights at Frankfurt to other publishers, so there aren't agents here who specialize in, in, in work from a foreign language. And there's not much business in it. That's, I mean, to be cynical. You could invest a huge amount of time and you'd have to get unless you spoke I mean there are, of course there have been agents who had a, s- a second language or a third language or a particular connection to another country um, uh, Toby Eadie had a connection with China and then ended up with Yung Chang and a number of other Chinese writers but no I mean the short answer is they not
1: How is it possible driver. to become an agent yeah because most people you talked about kind of have like 20 to good. 30 years <laughs> experience sorry like most people have had 20 to 30 years experience before they leave the publishers and become an agent rather than starting at the beginning and growing with it kind of it's
0: not entirely true actually not every i'm mean, not all agents were publishers first yeah it's the usual route you go in as an assistant or a secretary i mean that's what i didn't i went into a public i did go into a publishing house first but it's not necessarily the case
1: and there are some really big
0: agencies out there now. Is it all
1: about having the connection with kind of the personal connection oh with I the I don't agent? know, I
0: think it's blind luck isn't it I mean
1: <laughs>
0: you look around, it's not about hanging out at the Groucho Club or something like that uh, you look around, I, d- I don't know how people get their jobs uh, no they're not all John Le Carre's son who's just publishing a book actually, that's quite interesting but you know it's not, <laughs> all, it's not as nepotistic as you might fear um, I don't know you just write a million letters, like, you know, hope to get, one get of an offer. One of my
1: students who was on the MA course last year is working for a literati- literary agency in London as an assistant now off this course, so there you go. It's possible. It can <laughs> be done. <laughs> 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 um, have contract negotiations with publishers become I'm more difficult and attractive given that agents want to keep as much. Um,
0: yes. Yeah. Uh, the question was have. Negotiations with publishers become harder. I've uh, always been quite difficult. There are certain issues that touch a publisher off. Um, and over the years, there's been—I don't know if this is any of any interest to anyone—but there have been huge rows about European exclusivity. The Brit, you know, the, the Europe is an open market. The uh, British and American publishers can both sell their editions of a, of a book into Europe, and there's quite a large market in Holland, for instance. Is a big market for uh, English language books. The British publishers started insisting on having the exclusive rights to sell their edition in Europe. The Americans got very upset and crossed. It's kind of boring. But these things do cause huge fights. Ebook rights, electronic rights, have, have been a huge struggle. Uh, to some extent, I sympathize with publishers who feel they really must have those rights because if an ebook if you know, if your if you're, um, Random House, you publish a book. Someone else was to publish the ebook, and that takes the market. That's what the market wants. It kills the book. So of course they want those rights. It protects the thing of value that they have. From an agent's point of view, you've got to be careful. You don't want to. L- you don't want to grant rights to a publisher that aren't going to be exploited. Because once you've granted them, you don't get them back. Um, the other thing with electronic rights that we have to be very careful about is that unless you get the language of the contract just right, you can end up impairing film and television rights uh, because a, an electronic adaptation of a book can also be called a film. So you don't want to say to the author, I'm really sorry, can't take that offer from Spielberg because we granted electronic <laughs> rights to show blogs over for <coughs> £2,000. Really sorry. So, you, I, no, I mean, people have. I, I, I joke, but that sort of thing happens. And it's uh, a nightmare to unravel. I've not made that mistake, of course. Um, so, that can be difficult. Um, and the curious thing about a recessionary period, we were just talking about earlier on, is that times are hard. Publishers are thinking at least twice before acquiring a book and paying good money for a book. And yet, at the same time, if a writer is perceived to be or is indeed a good seller, they are those writers are more valuable now than ever before. So the p- their prices go up because publishers still need books. So it's a curious, you know a recession can drive a certain type of price up. Um, you talked about um, Tom Ashler and. TOM ASHLER. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Right. I masher masher. The next
1: have a <laughs> you talked to like about Tom Asher and how successful he was, but he was also a very instinctive creature.
0: Totally, yeah. yeah.
1: And he met people personally, and yeah. he always said that he just mm-hmm. knew. Yeah. And if he got that feeling, yeah. that was it. And
0: That's what I meant by it being the heart of the business. Yeah. It's a, it is a down to individuals, isn't it? No,
1: Quercus at the moment are doing much the same thing. Who? Quercus, the publisher of Antony Cheetham's Yeah. Been doing very well. But have you seen the
0: news? So uh,
1: what I want to ask you is um, if you choose your next um, great book on um, what comes through the post, okay, randomly, how do you as a literary uh, agent make sure that you choose
0: someone uh, by that feeling well that you. I don't th- I th- think it is really about someone, although, I mean, it's about the book. And, and it's easy to choose the books because 99.9% of the stuff you read is not good. And every now and then something just takes your breath away, and that's the one. I don't believe that. Well, he nah, he's full of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> he is full of rubbish. Because you know, you know, not every writer is a nice person. No, not, uh, nor is every publisher. And, and Tom Masher is a, a genius. He was absolutely a genius publisher, not an easy guy to get along with. But many of his writers were not people you'd think, wow, what a great person. You'd think, no, I spare I me. Don't
1: really know.
0: Wonder. So, so he, he says. To
1: maybe.
0: Well, maybe he did see a glint in the eye that so told him.
1: I'm just wondering, as a agent, has that ever happened
0: to you? What, where I responded to the person rather than the work? A little bit, yeah. Actually, it has happened quite recently. I met someone who I thought there was something interesting going on there. But if it doesn't happen on the page, it's not going to happen at all. Because out there, they're not going to meet the writer. And actually, in this day and age, you're not going to see the writer interviewed on television, hear them really. You're not going to hear them on the radio hardly. I mean, where do you you kind of have contact with Apart from the internet. It's very hard to have any contact with the writer in this day and age, apart from Facebook and the occasional events at Waterstones and a writer every now and then on midweek and start the week. So that thing about, because a lot of people do say, oh, you know, she got the deal because she looks so great. And I, d- I don't, you know, lots of great looking people who don't sell. I, I, I don't it's easy to be cynical about those things and I don't quite buy it. It's about the book. I, I really believe it's about the writer. Is enough? Um, I think it's
1: Yeah, I think we've interrogated <laughs> Anthony and he's given us <laughs> like <that>. a great <laughs> overview of uh, the business of the literary agent but also I think the business of books more generally. Um, please do join us for a drink at the end um, and thank Anthony very much for his talk. you. Um, <laughs>